holding pocket. Welcome to another episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Kat. Hello, Kat. Hi. How are we all today? Oh, very good. Yes. Yeah. As listening to the three subjects we've got today, and it's just typically rabbit hole, you know, the fact we've got such different things. And honestly, Richard has the most that I've never heard of. And today... Again, really, you've never heard of. I've heard of it, but I don't know what it is. Oh, we'll get to that. But uh, yeah, it's always a mystery. I do love learning about all these random things. Though. Me too. It's made me, I think, even more of a bore at dinner parties than I normally <laughs> am, because I just happen to know a tiny bit about a lot of things now. I yeah. know, it's, it's very annoying for people. It's but do you find you thinking, oh, well, no, there's that thing. Now, there's someone said that thing about that thing, because mm. I haven't quite grasped the detail. Yeah. I find my brain can hold stuff for a very limited time. So only tiny flecks of knowledge remain from each subject. Yeah. Yes, I'm definitely not retaining all of it, I would I say. I actually must say, I think I retain more of what you two say than what I've swatted up for the week. Because, you know, different swatting, sort of thing. yeah, it's a yeah. different absorption yeah. technique. Yeah. Mm, so interesting. Should we just start? Yes. yes. I think we should, because I think actually we should start with yours, seeing as that's come up already. And you are going to be talking about phrenology. Phrenology, yes. Interesting, Charles, that you should talk about different sort of levels of attentiveness. Because if I were to run my fingers over your skull, mm-hmm. again. <laughs> or indeed your skull, <laughs> again, I might, if I were a phrenologist, be able to find a corresponding bump or ridge in your skull that would tell me something, according to the doctrines of phrenology, about your personality. It's the phrenology, two words, meaning basically knowledge of the mind. But the idea is, is that as our understanding of the brain and the mind developed, there was this notion that our personalities, our characteristics, our attributes would belong, be localised in different portions of the brain. So if we were particularly, I don't know, given to devotion, particularly given to lust, particularly given to attentiveness, then those areas of the brain would be correspondingly developed in the way that a muscle would be that you used more than another one. And that that difference would also register on the skull. The plasticity of the skull as it forms would reflect these different attributes pulsing away in the brain and creating a different shape. Load of old nonsense, of course. Of course, it's a load of old nonsense. It's a pseudoscience. But it did enjoy a very brief but intense vogue in the first half of the 19th century. Gaul 
a German physician, actually in Vienna, at the end of the 18th century, when he was a boy in school, he observed that the people who seemed to have the most proficient memory had wide foreheads and protruding eyes. And from this, he began to piece together this notion that perhaps functions of the brain created a difference in the shape of the skull. Of course, we knew very little then at the end of the 18th century about the functions of the brain. Galen, in the second century, believed that the brain was a kind of lump of cold sperm, but it was responsible for our mental lives. It had previously been thought that the heart was the source of feeling and impression and so on. So they were beginning to understand the function of the brain in thought. But Gaul began to piece this together in a way which was systematic. He was uh, worked in a lunatic asylum, as they called it then. So he would inspect the brains of people who had various mental disorders and note what he would think of indicators of particular strengths or weaknesses that they had. And so he created a sort of map of the skull and its ridges and its bumps, which corresponded to particular attributes or aptitudes of a person. He formed an alliance with another fellow called Spurzheim, Johann Spurzheim, who was his assistant. They would get, for example, there was um, a market in executed bodies, not just for dissection, of course, surgeons wanted that, but also phrenologists. He didn't call it phrenology, by the way. That was a later adoption. So what happened was, Gaul was asserting all this stuff. And this coincided in the 1790s, of course, with revolutionary tides of thought. Now, the emperor, Franz, Francis II, the Holy Roman Emperor, began to be persuaded that phrenology suggested that there were physical attributes which determined behavior rather than, if you like, perception of God or obedience to doctrine or the status quo. So he began to think that this might be part of a materialist phenomenon that threatened the status quo. So Gaul rather fell out of favour. There was a court physician, it's thought, who had the ear of the emperor who was particularly interested in getting Gaul out of town. So he disappeared with Spurzheim and they went off on a sort of tour of Europe. And then they fell out because Gaul rather believed that these attributes were fixed, whereas Spurzheim, I think seeing an opportunity here to conscript more people to the doctrine, thought that you could work on aspects of your personality and improve them. So here you have a notion, a way of explaining personality and character through apparently the empirical evidence of the bumps and the ridges in your skull, and also an opportunity to improve yourself through working on those areas which were in need of improvement. Charles? You mentioned the market in executed bodies. Yes. Can you explain that further? Well, if you were a hangman, once the body was retrieved from the gallows, well, he would sell portions of the rope for quite a premium because of course, they were great public events then. But also surgeons who were looking for cadavers to dissect, quite hard to go around and say, you know, your auntie Florence, who you just died, I wonder if I might have her for my students. A big ask in those mm, days. So mm. often it was the, and Burke and Hare, of course, notoriously. But anyway, so that's how a phrenologist would get hold of a skull. And of course, you could examine it particularly closely and also the brain as well. And would they examine it? as the brain of a guilty person, as a, of a criminal? Well, there was thought that, I mean, the area, for instance, around the ears was thought to be where the animal instincts resided. And so if you had a particularly prominent bone here, yes. that might be acquisitiveness, for example. The perception of the divine was thought to rest at the top of the head. And the various, I mean, there are complicated, Gaul believes that there were 27 particular characteristics that corresponded to a particular physical phenomenon in the skull. Spurzheim developed that to 35. But of course, 
if you're trying to do this, it's hard to think of anything more susceptible to confirmation bias. Mm. So, of course, if you have a notorious murderer and they don't exhibit the characteristics that notorious murderers are supposed to do, well, then you attribute it to something else or you think they had other attributes that rather cancelled out. But it really, really took on. And I think it was because it gave people this idea that you could measure personality. So this mm. became a really, really big thing. In Europe, it was quite quickly dismissed as a pseudoscience. So by the 1840s, it was falling out of favour. There was a concerted effort by scientists to show that the evidential base for this was specious and that it wasn't really a science at all. But it did have this extraordinary vote. Scotland in particular, Edinburgh had the Phrenological Society and there were two brothers there called Combe and they were very, very keen on it indeed. And I think because it did offer this way of explaining the mysteries of personality, hugely taken up in the United States as well. Now, you may have seen in junk shops or in the auction house now, porcelain heads, phrenological heads. Have you seen the white porcelain skulls? And on it is written a sort of map. Divided up into pits. Divided up into this. Well, those uh, were the Fowler brothers, Orson and Lorenzo Fowler of Massachusetts, who took up phrenology and popularised it in America and made a huge thing out of it. Orson Fowler was a fascinating man. He also was the inventor of the octagonal house, which had rather <laughs> a vogue in, the, in America and Canada in the 1850s and 1860s. He believed that octagonal houses were better for you and were more cheaply built. And you'll still find them today, actually. There are some surviving examples of octagonal houses, but never mind that. But they produced the phrenological head. And that meant that you could, at home, examine the skulls of those around you to make decisions about what might be best for them, for example. But it did turn into quite a, a darker side to it as well with the racist elements. Well, that's of course true. If you start thinking that the formation of the skull is indicative of character and attributes, well, then of course that can go negatively and positively. And so notorious pseudosciences like eugenics, for example, or uh, in America, one of the reasons why it was so popular in America was it was thought to demonstrate the dominant status of white people and the inferior status of black people. It was thought indeed that there was in black people a skull formation, which was an appetite for mastery. So what you could say, of course, was that these things were fixed. And so it could never be the case that someone who came from black heritage could have the attributes that white, white people were simply seen as superior. You'd also see, of course, notoriously Nazi Germany, measurements were made, and elsewhere, measurements were made of people when eugenics was the sort of pseudoscience in vogue. Employers would require a phrenological reading of a potential employee's head. So you would be able to make an assessment of whether that person would be suitable for your employment. Load of all nonsense. Graphology in the 1970s did the same thing. Do you remember there were in the 1970s there was a vogue for graphology, this idea that character is written into your handwriting? Yes, Robert Maxwell used to use that for senior employees, I believe. Worked so well, didn't it? <laughs> um, Surrounded by paragons of virtue. And so it sort of fell out of favour, but nevertheless did have this um, uh, very negative effect in trying to sort of determine that there were physical characteristics to... If you were interested in the Ubermensch, for example, then you want that Ubermensch to exhibit physical characters, Arianism. If you can mm -hmm. show that in a cranial structure too, well, then you're, you're on to a winner. But of course, it's complete nonsense and pretty much dismissed. Would you like to know my favourite fact? Yes. Please. 1826, the Edinburgh Phrenological Society put up one of its disciples to debate a notion that was prevalent at that time 
which was that human anatomy was unique and distinctive and only in the particularity of human anatomy could the basis of moral reason be found. Now, the bloke from the Phrenological Society said that was not true, that he could see no anatomical difference between brain-skull relationship between primates. So the human and also the animal kingdom were absolutely continuous in that respect, caused a huge hoo-ha because it seemed to dislodge the unique status of humanity in terms of it's able to reckon itself as a moral being. 17-year-old student was present at that debate. His name... Charles Darwin. How fascinating. Mm. Just one of the footnote to that. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <gasps> <laughs> he was into it too. Or yes. rather, the Baskerville. Remember how of the Baskervilles? Yes. Mm. He was a, the, the Baskerville fellow was a phrenologist. Oh. Do you remember? Spoke about skull properties. We're just going to have to do Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. He seems to, one of those crops up. He yeah. does. I feel like he's our mascot or something. But all the cranky stuff. <laughs> you know, yes. he, he believed in all fairies. Well, he didn't believe in phrenology, probably, but he was phrenology curious. Well, I mean, I think they were just looking. He was trying to find a, a reason for everything. Yeah, no, no. I imagine that the kind of a while before our standards of evidential worth or worthlessness took a while to evolve, I suppose. And uh, at least he was curious about it all. Yeah, yes. and curiosity. I'm wondering. I mean, it was a big thing in when there was all those cults around. Aryan cultures, and I wondered in Norway and Scandinavia if that kind of measurement of physical characteristics. You see those awful photographs, don't you, of, mm. yeah. of people of different racial types mm. with metal calipers having their measurements Terrible. taken. Absolutely, that was a huge thing, and in archaeology in general as well. And and as you say into the Second World War and the the Nazis estimation of different people and different groups. That's why my immediate thoughts were jumping to those quite dark sides of it, because that's very much how it was mm. looked at. And yeah. Different types of skull, different groups of people. So I worked in one of the anatomical collections at the University of Oslo, and we used to have this huge collection of, of Sami individuals that had in the past been used these skulls for looking at these differences in a really awful way. To show the way. inferiority Yeah, exactly, of the sort of different characteristics. And that's, so it's quite, it's been quite common. Well, it was a long time ago. And it's, But isn't it yeah. fascinating that you would, and these are people, they're genuine, these aren't charlatans, these are people who are genuinely interested in understanding the world and doing so with integrity, would kind of look at these 35 regions of the skull which would correspond precisely to a particular attribute that just seems such an extraordinarily outlandish thing to do but made sense to them yes. the enneagram today something or myers-briggs yes. all those means yeah. of trying to understand someone's psychology in, the, in, the workings, in order to predict yeah. their behavior they all you seem could, yeah you, know. you can see why it's really it's something that people might really want to do because it's just such an enigmatic concept and it would give you a real advantage wouldn't it, if you could predict somebody yeah. else's behavior yeah exactly yeah. so i think we're going to move on to sort of kind of related not really almost <laughs> which is my topic which was uh, suggested by listener david and that's hallucinations now, i quite like this one uh, it's a really fascinating one and to start with a definition of a hallucination it's perceptions that occur without a corresponding stimulus so any of the human senses so it can be visual auditory tactile gustatory so taste and smell so anything that sort of seems to happen that you 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 see or you hear it's not the same as delusions, which are false beliefs. So if you think someone's following you, that's essentially a delusion. But if you see someone, but they're not there, then that's a hallucination. So that's the, the sort of difference. Oh, yes. You okay. could have both. 
You could absolutely have both, yes. But it's only the hallucination is only if there's something you're actually seeing yeah. that's there, not not a sense that there is someone. So there's a little bit of a grey area, I suppose. But if you feel, if you think you feel something touching your arm, oh, then that home. would be a tactile hallucination, yes. essentially. They're very interesting because really there's a there's a division and the more medical sort of understanding and scientific and medical is quite a recent one not really from uh, until about 17th century or so thereabouts and in the past it's also been very closely linked to concepts of madness and sort of earlier sources we talk about madness as a sort of related uh, concept but actually, a lot of these hallucinations, when we go back in time, are not always bad. I think we tend to think of them as a negative thing. And in a lot of popular culture, it's a sort of, it is when something goes goes very wrong, and that's when you have the hallucinations. But actually, a lot of it is not. In many cultures, they are, are very meaningful. And I came across some really interesting ethnographic studies, I think from about the 1970s, looking at um, actually patients, so so mentally ill um, psychiatric patients, but people who had hallucinations. And they were studying European and African patients and comparing these hallucinations. And they were actually quite different across these, uh, the, these different parts of the world. In the African groups, People tended to be spoken to directly if they heard voices. And they were also typically people known identities. So it would have been an ancestor or a god or something like that. Whereas in more European populations, they tend to be third person and unknown. So you just hear a voice, but you didn't know. What is that about? Is that a vision then? Was that something separate? Uh, so that would be a visual one, but this is more, I think, oral. So if you, you sort yes. of, you've heard someone speaking Audio. to you. Or, yes. so, yeah. So yeah, that's the sort of thing. So it was really interesting. But going back in time and seeing written records, so we've got quite a lot of record for these things happening in ancient Greece, for example. But interestingly, there's no word for hallucinations in uh, among the Greeks or Romans, actually. So even though the concept is there, that the actual word doesn't really mm. exist. There's a the related Latin word, which is hallucinatio, which means mental wandering. Oh. But there's there's lots of other Greek words that are related depending on the nature or the the content. So, phantasmata, for example, is uh, there are shadowy apparitions, which again mm. is a, a sort of cultural thing. So, so those are really interesting ones. There's some other descriptions later on in, in the Christian world. Saint Augustine, for example, Ooh. describes visions. A big thing. And obviously these have very much religious context here. He actually tried to define three different meanings of these sort of mystical experiences from the word um, videra, which means to see in Latin. And they could be corporal, so visual experiences of the external world through the senses. Mm. They could be imaginative, which were representations of images and objects uh, that had a temporal but not a spatial location. Mm -hmm. And finally, intellectual, which were concepts with no spatial or temporal locations. So interesting. So any of these sort of visions, that's how you'd classify them. Well, I got them. some of that. I don't want to... I'll be doing a bit on that in the next segment. Excellent. So we can yeah. link them. I think if, if you are signed up to a programme in which a life beyond but reachable yes imaginable is implicit then your vision of that is going to break through into your present day experience i think that's quite a common religious experience yeah yes, absolutely that makes sense st thomas aquinas established um a difference between 
normal and false perceptions. And he also defined a vision as a natural phenomenon instigated by God or the devil. You know, he had a famous one. Did he? Later in his later life, having written this extraordinary compendium, well, you know, Summa Theologica, he had a vision described as that in which he dismissed all his previous work as mere chaff. Mm. Some people try to explain it as a material phenomenon, as a kind of stroke or something like that. But it was a sort of sense of a truth beyond anything he had previously imagined, which meant everything that he'd done to that date was worthless. Okay. Imagine that. Yes. that would be <laughs> Interestingly, I thought uh, some of these, again, these classical writers and, and all the ones we know about very well, like the Oracle uh, of Delphi, for mm. example. And this is a really interesting one. So the Oracle was a high priestess at the Temple of Apollo in Delphi. And this was seen very much as the, the sort of centre of the world in ancient Greece. And people would come and ask questions to get these divine answers uh, from the Oracle. So you would go into this small room called the Aditon. You'd give your question and the Oracle would inhale a vapour from a fissure in the ground and then respond with an answer. And various writers, so Plutarch, for example, uh, explained that it was a vapour that sent her into a, a sort of trance. And Strabo would also uh, explain that these fumes inspired divine visions. And modern investigations of this temple didn't actually find any fissures uh, on the floor at all. Mm. But the temple sits on top of two fault lines that actually had seismic activity, which would have released light gases. Do you ever wonder, when you come across creatures, figures like, well, like the Sibyl at Cumae, what they were like when they were off duty? <laughs> did, they have, did they have one? Or was there a rotor? Did they go out the way and go, oh, blimey, that fish is a bit active today. I'm exhausted. You wouldn't believe what I... But just, there is something... Uh, this, is, this is the clergyman in me is wondering, how did that actually happen? What were the arrangements? Yes. And the downtime, you, you'd have to have a rotor. Because yes. basically they're being knocked out by a, a gas, weren't yeah. they? Yeah. I mean, you know, you'd be high on this gas and then presumably come down with quite a crash. And yeah. then your next punter is at the door and you'd have to start somebody it somewhere up. is going to organize all this and pay for all this I mean, yes. and supply all this yeah exactly make sure it can continue yeah. well so i imagine the much. person coming to consult the oracle had to leave some gold behind yeah it's there's why... payments and, and i think you could fast track the queue if you paid more so there's <laughs> <laughs> why, the yeah. why you have cults of priesthoods and yeah. cults managers yeah oh, yes. agents keep it simple yeah. well, make it work yeah. <laughs> yes. give the punters what they want yeah. <laughs> This did make me drop down a, a huge big um, rabbit hole of hallucinogenics as Ooh, well and yes. the history of that, which is obviously a huge big topic in itself. But interestingly, uh, one site suggested that 90% of human cultures have developed techniques to induce altered states of consciousness, including hallucinations. So it seems very popular. You go back to an amazing discovery 3,000 years ago in uh, the Bronze Age in Menorca in a cave. They found all these burials, 210 individuals, along with sealed decorative containers with strands of hair that were all dyed red. And analysing these scientifically, they managed to find uh, psychoactive alkaloids from plants. So these substances that can cause, that are known to cause hallucinations in the hair. So that's the, the humans who, who whose hair, you know, this was, had consumed things like possibly henbane or uh, mandrake. So 3,000-year-old <laughs> substances um, in these. Isn't that, I mean, incredible. 
Of course, you think of berserkers. I know it's a load of old nonsense. Well, you know, you know about this guy. But the idea is of taking some kind of hallucinogenic mushroom or something as a way of improving your perception or making you yeah. braver or bolder. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. And reaching that sort of spiritual different level and communing and communicating with gods or yeah. ancestors. and things now, you know. With That's the, all rage, isn't it? It is. I had yeah. a GP who thoroughly recommended it, but I've yet to take him up on it. <laughs> <laughs> Microdosing what? Mushrooms. Magic yeah. mushrooms. But I, I used to macrodose magic mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> and that was um, that was a huge entertainment for us when we were in our late teens and early 20s. <laughs> I can imagine. Do you want to know my fun fact? My favourite fact. Favourite fun fact. Yes, yes. Don't you know it, it favourite? Fun. It was fun as well. It's <laughs> <laughs> actually, and I heard about this a, a while ago, that the word of the year, 2023, is hallucination. Goodness. Because it's come back into the dictionary with a new meaning. And it relates to artificial intelligence and the creation of hallucinations by AI. Oh, no. And this is when something like ChatGPT or any of these uh, engines that produce text produce something that sounds very plausible, like facts, but is actually not true at all. <sighs> and that's called a hallucination. It's it's clearly not intentional in the sense that they're trying to deceive, but it's it's just scraping up all this information and producing something that sounds completely right and it's not, mm. but it's called a hallucination. And how do you know? How do you distinguish between what's not that and what's real, if that's yeah. one of the alternatives and offer compared with where we normally look for reality? Yeah? Precisely. This is the huge problem because they are so plausible. I mean, I... I when they first came out about a year or two ago, I, I sort of asked one of these to, to write a little biography of me and I'd, I was delighted to see all the awards I'd won. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them don't even exist and I definitely didn't win them. But these were essentially hallucinations because they, they kind of just predict the next thing that's likely to come after so the first thing. Anticipate your own existence. Yeah, which is quite crazy. So that is an AI hallucination. And out there in the world where more and more of our interactions are going to be like that, yeah. maybe that has real force. Yeah. Mm. Which is quite, quite chilling, really. terrifying. Terrifying, yeah. yes, but a very different type of hallucination. Well, my people, my subject, if I yes, may say. Yes, move on to you. There's the odd bit of hallucination and certainly visions in the world of the hermit. Oh. And um, I know this will be a rich territory, particularly for for Richard, but the roots of the word hermit, either, I mean, there's a sort of crossover here. The ancient old French term refers to a recluse. But if you look at the Latin or the Greek, eremita or eremites, it's the person of the desert. And so you're looking at people who are choosing desolate areas to go and retreat to, usually for the good of their soul or their communications with God. And there's a difference actually between anchorites and hermits. And Rich would certainly know this, and I'm sure you would cat too, but an anchorite selects a cell that's attached to a church, whereas a hermit usually is in the wilderness and free to wander. That, that's the basic difference between the two. And the first Christian hermit that we really come across as written about and understood is a man who has his own biographer, St. Jerome, and that is St. Paul of Thebes. And he was born in around 230 AD, Thebes being in Egypt. He's also known, helpfully, for my paper today as St. Paul the First Hermit, uh, which really <laughs> nails it. Yeah, he's actually. <laughs> <laughs> and he's seen as the first Christian hermit, let's put it that way, because we're, there are Buddhist ones and Hindu ones as well, which we'll touch on later. 
Now, this is my first rabbit hole, flag it up early. There was a, an emperor, Roman emperor called Decius or Decius? Decius, Decius, yeah. D-E-C-I-U-S, yeah. -E had a very short reign, 249 to 251. And really it was not a, it wasn't a successful imperial reign. In fact, he's the first Roman emperor to die in battle against a foreign enemy because the Goths killed him. But he precipitated the first hermit because during one of his crackdowns on Christianity, one of the Roman crackdowns on Christianity, uh, St. Paul of Thebes thought it would be wise to disappear. And he went to live in a cave and lived in a state of prayer and penitence uh, before dying at, and I know there must be a lot of good to a life like this, but he probably didn't reach 113, but that's, the, that's what he's given in the histories. Um, and his sort of successor, who perhaps buried him, was a man born in around 251. And he's St. Anthony of Egypt, also known as Anthony the Great. The daddy. He is, now, I know, Richard, you spent time in a monastery, didn't you? Yes, I did. And he is the man who is the father of monasteries. Well, it depends what sort, I mean, he's the desert father. I mean, yes. others. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. The, the desert fathers is a sort of a known species of hermit that began in the third century. And they are the basis of Christian monasticism and base themselves on Jesus's life of poverty, service and self-denial and really busied themselves with prayer, work and austerity. But I would say if we, if we look at St. Anthony, he's extraordinary. He's considered the founder of and the father of organized Christian monasticism. There are others who, who were very active at an early, early stage. He was a disciple of Paul, and he chose a life of solitude from the age of 20. And in 305, he emerged from his singular existence to instruct and organize the monastic life of those who had chosen to imitate him. So an incredibly important figure in the Christian monastic movement. And his life is seen as one of constant battle, really. He's repeatedly tempted by the devil in spiritual combats. And according to Athanasius, the devil's assault on Antony took the form of visions and either seductive or horrible ones that Antony would have to endure and battle against by the force of prayer. And his battles with the devil have been uh, depicted by everyone from Hieronymus Bosch to Max Ernst and Cezanne and Salvador Dali, as well as in the novel, The Temptation of St. Antony. So yes, these desert fathers is, are really stemming from part of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 21 of Matthew, which says, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And so this was seen as the par excellence version of Christianity, where you turn your back on everything and do that, sort of live that austere life. This became very popular by the Middle Ages across Europe. And in fact, Kat, when we first met, we were digging up uh, a Roman villa near me, near a village called No Bottle, a wonderful name. It has a Roman villa there, which we know, which we mm. have dug up. Yes. Your, your colleagues did an expert job. But if you look in the next door field from the Middle Ages, there's a monastic cell set up for a hermit there. And he used the material from the fallen down Roman villa to build his own little monastic cell in the next door field. And these people lived in it, usually in wild and deserted places. They would grow things and be gifted food, living a very simple life of prayer and contemplation. If we're thinking of a hermit, that is what we're thinking of. 
There are some foreign ones who really had extraordinary lives. And we'll see, some of them became quite famous. There was a man called Pietro del Moroni, who was an Italian who, who lived as a hermit from the age of 25. He slept on bare rock in a cave and wore a hair, horsehair shirt and an iron girdle. He had the chains of an iron girdle cutting into his flesh, which he thought was a, a way of disconnecting with the temptations of the flesh and reconnecting with the true message of God. And he formed his own branch of the Benedictines, in fact. And in 1294, after two years of uh, Rome not being able to decide who should become Pope, this man was made Pope Celestine V. Oh, yeah. And he was a disaster. He was a very old man by this stage, in his 80s. And he quit after five months, unable to deal with the politics, which went with the position of being Pope. One of only two popes to have resigned. Is Celestine that right? V and Benedict XVI. How interesting. Yeah. Well, he knew that he wasn't up for it. Anyway, moving on to another famous one, we have this woman called Julian, genuinely called Julian, or sometimes she's referred to as Juliana of Norwich. And she was a 14th century anchoress, considered to be one of the most famous people in, in, in the hermit world of the Middle Ages. And the reason we really know so much about her is because the fascination of her legacy, she's the first woman to write a book in English that survived. And she wrote The Revelations of Divine Love, which is based on 16 visions she had when people thought, and quite wrongly, that she was on her deathbed. And during this period of extreme ill health, she had one particular vision, which was uh, Christ appearing to her while bleeding. And uh, this whole series of visions gave her an insight into the true God as she saw him, the true Christ, and his sufferings and his love for his people. And she wrote a short text quite soon after her vision about what she had seen and what it meant. And then a second longer one with meditations on the visions. So it does connect quite well with what you were talking about, Kat, just then. Mm. And then there is the celebrity version of a, a medieval hermit. And there's one in particular, St. Robert of Knaresborough, who's born as Robert Flower in York in around 1170. And he became so famous as a friend of the poor. There were lots of lovely stories about him. There's one time when he, he managed to get possession of a cow for the good of poor people. And somebody tried to take it off him by pretending to be a cripple. And he gave it to this man knowing that he was a fraud. And as he walked away, the man became crippled. I'll teach him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he made a deal with St. Robert of Nesborough. If I give you the cow back, can I have my former abilities back? And that was that was seen through. But St. Robert of Nesborough was so famous that in 1216, the year after Magna Carta was signed by King John, he went to see St. John and he was busy at prayer. And the king's constable who was with him said, said to St. Robert, get off your knees, the king's here. And he turned to King John with some corn and handed it to him and said, if you could make something as wonderful as this, then I would get up for you, which is a very good Christian answer. Brave man. <laughs> yeah, and he was, you know, got away with it. There is this whole thing of great men of the world and hermits. Diogenes became a very famous figure for artists in the 16th, 17th centuries, because Diogenes, actually not a particularly great man, he'd been exiled from his corner of modern-day Turkey for debasing the coinage. But he was an early cynic, as in the movement, the philosophical movement of cynics. And he went to live in Corinth after a very checkered life. He'd been 
kidnapped by pirates, sold into slavery. He lived in a huge alabaster jar in the centre of Corinth at night and in the daytime used to provoke. He hated Plutarch and used to disrupt his lessons and wandered around in the daytime with a, a lantern symbolising that he was on the lookout for an honest man. Mm. And during the 320s, Alexander the Great came to visit Corinth and everyone was coming up to Alexander the Great as the greatest man in the world, asking him for favours. And he was astonished because he knew Diogenes, this famous philosopher lived nearby, but wouldn't come to him. So he went to Diogenes and this famous encounter between sort of imperial power and intellect where Alexander the Great says to Diogenes, what would you like me to do for you? And he said, well, if it's all right, could you get out of the way because I'd like to have the sun on me. And it's seen as this victory of, of the mind over ordinary power. It's a, it's a very interesting trope, isn't it? I mean, there's the trick of the holy fool in Russia and it's sort of most recent iteration of that was Rasputin, I suppose, this kind yes. of bearded mm -hmm. monkey, hermity, mad figure out of the wilds who gets the confidence of the empress. But Ivan the Terrible had a holy fool too, who was the only person who could speak truth to him because of this peculiar status of being someone whose connection with God is so certain. Sort of trumped yours in or, a way. Or at least stands alongside. In fact, Ivan the Terrible was the pallbearer at his funeral as a sign of his humility before that. Risky job, though, getting that wrong. Yes, it's not going to end well. No. <laughs> but it, actually, it's interesting because we touched on this previously in, a, in another episode, how the Enlightenment changed things for different bodies and, and religious concepts and social concepts. And certainly what was bad for hermits as a profession was the 16th century Protestant Reformation, followed by the Age of Enlightenment, when scientific reason was considered more important than just spiritual learning. And really, in England, the life of the hermit only briefly flickered back into life from about 1727 for a century. And that's when garden design yeah. for the aristocracy might involve a, a little hermit's hut. And with a hermit, you hire... And you hired a hermit. I just wanted to just talk that over with you, Charles. <laughs> did you have one? Uh, well, if you want one? that job, Richard. No, we never did. But there was that one down the road where Jervis Jackson Stotts lived and oh, he had a yes. grotto so, and a hermitage. I can't remember what it was Horton. called. That's right. Yeah. But basically, this sort of reconnection with the, the wild past. So in the landscape, you'd have your little hermitage mm. and Richard's quite right. And this is my, that leads me to my favourite fact. So in your garden, you'd have coves and little mountains and menageries and all sorts going on. And often the hermit's hut would be a place for the aristocratic owner and his guests to stop for a arrest on their walk. But I really enjoy the, the hermit hired by Charles Hamilton, a member of parliament in the 18th century. Uh, he'd advertised that he was looking for an ornamental hermit who was required, required to be silent, not allowed to speak to the servants who delivered his food, and had to wear goat's hair robe and, and be barefoot. And he wasn't allowed to cut hair, nails or beard. Uh, and he was given a salary of five to seven hundred pounds, which is about, you know, it's it about a hundred thousand pounds today. Incredible. Uh, wow. and, and he was a, a Mr. Remington was brought on for seven years. Uh, but he didn't last the full seven years because after three weeks, he was found in the local pub having a drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I rather like him. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> the hermits rely on the kind of vividness of their story. There was a mm. lovely one. From the patron saint of Switzerland, St. Nicholas of Flew, who lived in a pile of leaves. 
Well, why not? Yeah, well, of course, well. no one lives in a pile of leaves. <laughs> I mean, these are performative things. I mean, there's a mixture of mythology, kind of vivid stories, but also performative. You are putting on a... It's well, like David Blaine standing in a box on the top of a crane. It is, really. And and the stylites, oh, you know, St. Simeon. Yes. These are people... St. Simeon lived for over 30 years on a pillar, hmm. was fed and everything. But he, he had real personal hygiene issues because yeah. he used to... Well, under his tunic, he had rather tight-fitting chain, which chafed at his flesh. And they reckon his bed was full of worms from yeah. him. You yeah. see, that would all you see, the more mortification of the flesh you can endure, then the more robust your your spiritual life, and That's the more it, isn't it? persuasive your piety. Yes. And again, again, the stylites, you kind of think, how much of that? Well, they must have Would they have down. a rotor as well? Yes. You know what I mean? Did you get a week <laughs> <Yes>. off? <laughs> um, it's impossible to know, of course. And but those, it is performance religion. Well, they are lives which are mini sermons in themselves. And these could yes. be people who have no sort of temporal powers you mm. might have as a king or an emperor or a general, but you have this extraordinary spiritual power that rivals it and in some cases eclipses it, I think. So yes. demonstrations of your extreme piety were useful. Mm. How interesting. Thank you. That was oh, very good. Pleasure. So that leads us to our favourite part. <laughs> we get to hear from our disembodied voice, who is this week's winner, please. I'm having a vision. <gasps> Who could it be? It's Cat this week. Well done. Oh, Yay. Well done Thank you. Very good. That's very, very, very nice. I think we should celebrate by having an enormous meal of magic mushrooms. Yes. <laughs> and yes. see what comes up. And, and record a programme on the back of I it. I think we should do that and yeah. just yeah, oh, come up with these topics. Find our inner selves. No, <laughs> I found some the other day, actually. You know what I mean? Did you? Yeah. What yeah. did you do with them, Richard? I left them to live <laughs> for their <others>. mushroomy life. <laughs> yes. The psilocybin mushroom, the liberty cap, as it's known. Oh, okay. That's the variety. Yeah. They're quite not it's unusual. It's a good name for a magic mushroom, isn't it? Because well, yes. they look like a, a liberty cap as worn by the sans-culotte in the French Revolution. Oh, I was seeing yeah. the function. Yes. liberating your yes. brain. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know about I suppose the thing is, does an hallucination tell you anything? It's like, be like dreams. Do dreams mm. tell you things that are useful? Or are they just kind of the random kind of flickering kaleidoscope of memory or desire or something. At least back to that interpretation there, you know, that the sort of, is it somebody speaking to you? Is it an unknown voice and all of that? Mm. All of these things, aren't they? Efforts to find some kind of shortcut to hard-won knowledge about the world, rather than technology, perhaps, or indeed the anchoress or the anchorite, or the the oracle who would... I wonder if you did subject to rigorous tests what the oracle said i mean it's an interesting one isn't it is it what she said actually match reality or did the person well, it believe it, was kept it pretty pretty oblique wasn't it there's yeah. that famous one where i think it was the delphic oracle was asked by a great general what will happen if i cross the river and the oracle said a great empire will be destroyed and he marched forward with great optimism and had his empire wiped <laughs> yeah. out. So you, you, right. you cut it. Yeah, Technically yeah. right. Wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah, don't you know, get your money back. Yeah. <laughs> Just spoke the truth. But it's rather like mediums, isn't it? They, mm. Yes. And it's, it's a kind of if you, yeah, and like um, horoscopes yes. in a way as well, because you, you can read shortcuts. into that. Shortcuts to the yeah. knowledge. Of, you can read into that. Yeah. It's a bit mm. like cursed families, isn't it, really? The curses tends to be quite vague. And I think... 
towards the end of phrenology being accepted, people likened it to things like, you know, palm reading yeah. and yeah. horoscopes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but never underestimate people's desire to think that they can win this. When yes. know stuff. Yeah. Yes, yeah. they all want I mean, to know. I all the time with politics now. I think all those sophologists or people who kind of predict how an election is going to go or what public opinion is, that's that's phrenology, that's palm yes. reading, that's astrology, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, talking about the future, <laughs> telling the future, <laughs> nicely moving on well to done. next week's episode. Yes. <laughs> we have to tell our listeners our topics coming up. Now, next week is going to be slightly different <gasps> Because it's going to be a Christmas theme. Oh. So we've all got Christmas topics. Yes. Charles, can you please research Christmas films? Yes, with pleasure. I'm going to be looking into something very Scandinavian, obviously, which is the Nissa. Which the Nissa. Nissa. What's yes. the Nissa? It's well, uh, the uh, 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 well. Uh, maybe you'll find out. You'll find out. You'll find out. And Richard, uh, you will be researching the pantos. Oh no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So I think that's it for this week. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. We love reading them, and they really help people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. Don't forget, you can also send us an email if you like, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic. That's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, goodbye, sweetheart. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye.